The following audio is brought to you by Summerside Community Church in London, Ontario. For more information on Summerside, visit us online at www.summersidechurch.ca. Well, over the uh, next two weeks, as kind of a January booster shot, I'll call it, I want to talk about something that I've been thinking a lot about lately, a huge idea uh, for the follower of Christ. Um, I want to talk about pursuing God, pursuing Jesus Christ in my walk. It's all over scripture. It's at the heart of the great commandment. And you read the Bible, you'll hear words like press on, strive, Uh, pursue frequently uh, to describe the attitude of a walk with Jesus that has purpose and and, and, and an undivided heart. You given any any thought to that this year so far? Many of you, when I asked the question, probably thought in your head, yeah. So my question perhaps for some of you today is, what's stopping you? What's in the way? Because I know that as I asked that question and you, 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 you had an answer, you also thought about something that has become a roadblock or there's something holding you back. And, and I just want to deal with that uh, together over the next two weeks. We're going to be in the same uh, chapter, Romans chapter 5, and I'm going to work through it. But I want to, I want to get you to deal with uh, the problem. So, first of all, you can start to turn there, uh, if you have your Bibles, to Romans chapter 5. But, but here's the problem that I want to address, and it's this. We go off into the ditch, spiritually, so easy. Leo, I hear what you're saying, I want to pursue God, but... And so often, the... The, the problem is that we fall prey to some lies that get stuck in our, our, our minds and our hearts that become, we trip up on them and they sap us of, of spiritual focus and strength and it becomes a self-talk cycle going on upstairs. You know what I'm talking about? Could be spiritual insecurity could be shrinking back in some way. It could be not going to God in the first place. It could be the fact that there are some false hopes that you, you've got your heart set on that you're maybe not even aware of. Could be just some derailing discouragement today. The stuff that comes, we buy into some lies and we don't deal with it. I hear this from believers all the time. That's why I'm bringing it up today. So, What I want to do today in the first five verses of chapter five is I just want to expose for you four lies, four lies that we uh, can easily slip into believing. And I want to let God's word speak into those lies today and kind of give us the ability to walk in freedom. Okay, so uh, here's one. We'll start with this lie. Number one, God is still angry with me. I just feel it all the time, Leo. 
I know that I'm saved. I know that I'm forgiven. I've heard all this stuff. I believe it. But honestly, I mostly feel that God is angry with me. Well, look at verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this uh, letter, just a little background for you, up to this point in this magisterial book of Romans, has told us that it's possible for us to have total forgiveness from God, to be declared righteous by God, and to be reconciled with Him personally. That's awesome stuff. Awesome. That's what it means to be a Christian. And now, what Paul's doing is he's giving us the outflow of that. And I want to zero in on the first phrase. Since we have been justified through faith. Do you, do you notice that that's in the past tense? It's completed action. It's a done deal focus. He's like, listen up, believer. This has happened for you if you know Jesus. Okay? But what I want to do today is I want to show you that there's stuff in the Christian life beyond just the word justification. I want you to see and feel the full impact of that in your life so you can pursue God. That's what this passage in Romans 5 is really all about. It's kind of a preview of the uh, Romans 8, an amazing chapter uh, many of you know. But notice this next phrase. We have peace. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The key word there is peace. If you like to underline in your Bible, underline the word peace. So the lie, God's still angry with me. The response, if you like to take notes, I would jot this down. This is what I wrote down for myself. Embrace God's declaration of peace towards you. God's declared something embrace it okay now you hear the word peace and everyone kind of immediately thinks about feeling peaceful that kind of tranquil laid back relaxed there's no problems i like peace i'm not stressed out okay um you need to know that in the Bible, uh, there are actually two types of peace that uh, the Bible talks about. There's uh, peace, the peace of God, and then there's peace with God. There's two different things going on. Those are two different uh, terms. The peace of God, I'll give you a couple of examples. We hear this in Philippians 4, uh, 7. Uh, you've heard this verse. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Okay, that's that subjective peace that comes to the believer through the, the ministry and work uh, of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Jesus talked about this in John 14 when he said this. He said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give. Let not your hearts be troubled neither let them be afraid but here's the thing 
in this passage here, he's not talking about the peace of God. He's talking about the other one. It's called peace with God. This is not an inner sense of peace. This is not subjective, it's objective. This is uh, a, a fact. This is uh, true. This is something that God has declared about his relationship with you. You're like, what does that even mean? It means the war is over. It means that God is no longer in opposition to you relationally because of your state of rebellion before you knew him. Did you know that before knowing Jesus, the Bible says uh, that you were his enemy, that you were under wrath, that you were facing condemnation? So when we read that God says you have peace with him, he's saying something about the fact that that isn't happening anymore. And some of you right now in this moment are going, what are you talking about? I've never heard that before. That doesn't sound very loving. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 3 says that unbelievers are referred to as the children of wrath. Romans 5.10, as we're going to see next week, it says that those children of wrath are enemies of God. That's the bad news of the gospel. And you cannot get the good news that is so life-changing until you understand that there's some bad news. And listen, it's urgent for me as a preacher right now to tell you that some of you There are some of you here who are saying to yourselves that you have peace with God who shouldn't be. And I don't want to give you false assurance this morning. I say this with love and care and concern. But hear me when I say that you have no basis to say that you are at peace with God unless... You have been justified by faith in Christ. That is the good news. Verse 1. God has declared peace with you. The war is over. You have been reconciled to God. That's why Paul will later say, There is no condemnation for those of you who are in Christ. That's what justification does for you. God has declared this about you. So my question to you this morning is this. Why are you still thinking that he's out to get you? Why do you doubt his motives? That's what I call um, Cold War Christianity. Cold War Christianity. Some of you... Uh, maybe old enough like myself to remember living uh, during the time of something called the Cold War. Others of you, the little history lesson. But have you heard the term the Cold War before? There was a time between the United States and, well, it's called Russia today, but it used to be called the Soviet Union for a, a period. But there was decades uh, between World War II and the, and, the, and the late 80s or so where technically... Those two big power blocks of countries 
were at peace with one another, technically. They weren't at war for decades. There was actually a peace treaty in place. But behind closed doors, both nations were actually aggressively working to undermine each other, assuming the worst from each other. They were stockpiling nuclear weapons in an arms race buildup, uh, and it was definitely headed towards a mutually assured destruction kind of mindset. They were so engaged in that. They were working through other nations like Vietnam and Korea to fight each other indirectly. So it didn't look like they were doing it directly, but they were arming them for, for sure. War almost erupted in Cuba during the Cuban missile, missile crisis because of this. And, and guess what, folks? That's what you get with worldly peace treaties. I need you to know God's not like that. When God declares you to be at peace with him, he ain't like the world. He means it. And the beauty is the promises of God uh, uh, come through this. They flow through this. Notice that it actually says this peace comes, look at the end of verse 1, through the Lord Jesus Christ. That is not an insignificant phrase. Everything good that God wants to get to you comes only through the Lord Jesus Christ. Which is why it shouldn't be surprising to you to know that that phrase is constantly under attack. It's like Lord Jesus is, you know, meets cancel culture and everyone goes out of their way to try to get rid of that because that's offensive. Interestingly, though, it seems like so many movements, so many religions still want to kind of borrow Jesus. They just want to get rid of that part. And the reason is, is because when you take away Lord Jesus Christ, you're just left with A guy who's a wandering prophet activist who can't make any universal claims on you or the world or about himself. And I've been watching this for a long time. In the 70s, 1970s for some of you, just so you know what millennium we're in. um, This was most obvious with the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses. In the 80s, it was in the New Age spirituality movement where Jesus was redefined. In the 90s, uh, we saw it start to come up in the academic liberal Protestant movement called the Historical Jesus Movement, where they taught about what Jesus really was about and wasn't what we find in the Bible. In the 2000s, it was the newer hipper version of atheism and of course there are just many religions in the world that well they want to include jesus in their teachings they just uh deny the main things that jesus actually taught about himself that the bible teaches teachings like this is what they get that jesus was only a messenger of god that he didn't die on the cross that he wasn't the ultimate sacrifice for people that he surely wasn't resurrected and that he doesn't live right now as king and intercessor 
for his people. Those things are denied. I think you could see that those kind of things are pretty serious in terms of the attack on the heart of the gospel. And here's what you need to know about that. Jesus disagrees. Jesus disagrees. He claimed to be all of those things. In John chapter 3, 36, he says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. So, our greatest need is peace with God. Our greatest comfort in life is knowing that since we are justified, we have it. We have this peace because of what Jesus has done that we could never do without. All right, here's the second lie. I wonder if you said it. God doesn't really want to hear from me. I don't don't feel worthy to talk to God, Pastor. I, I always feel hesitant. I always feel this creeping sense that he's just annoyed when I come to pray. Or I see some of the people in the church and they have this incredible prayer life. I, I, can't, I don't know how to go to him. And it just I, you talk about intimacy with God. I'm not even there. We need to nip that in the bud right now. Here's what you need to hold on to to reject that lie. Lean into the access to God that he has provided you. You have it. Notice verse 2. It says, Through Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have gained access by faith into the grace in which we now stand. That key word here is access. And it's really got to be part of your identity as a Christian. That you have this as a benefit of your salvation. The word for access, by the way, uh, has the idea of being brought near to someone. It has the idea of being introduced to someone of greater standing than yourself. Like if you were going to, say, meet a monarch of a country, you need someone to bring you to meet them properly. So, um, If you were ever in an occasion to visit the King of England, and by the way, I'm still getting my head around the fact that we don't have a Queen Elizabeth anymore, but we have a king, apparently, in England. So um, what you should know before you go meet the king is that there are centuries of protocol in place, traditions for what you can and cannot do when you're going to meet the king. It's lightened up a little bit, Um, and these traditions, by the way, come from uh, hundreds of years where monarchs of any country were given almost a divine status. People believed they were instruments of God, but um, here's a few interesting tidbits for you. I was just checking this out the other day about uh, meeting them. Let me see if I got this right. When he enters the room... You're supposed to stand to welcome him. Bowing is allowed, but not required. If you do bow, um, a man should bow his head just a little from the neck, and a woman should do a small curtsy. 
If the king extends his gloved hand towards you, you may shake it, but only lightly, okay? Uh, No firm handshakes. You must not touch him at any other time. You should address the king as your majesty, after which you can then call him sir. Do not talk about any personal private matters, although um, you can discuss sort of generic issues like the weather or the tabloids. I'm filtering out a lot of thoughts right now about that, but I feel the need to inform you that I'm filtering those thoughts out. Um, (laughs) I I just say that to say something about verse 2. Jesus has not only brought you into the throne room, but note note verse 2 again, that word access. Access by faith into the grace in which we stand. Jesus has addressed all of those protocol issues. There's no protocol anymore. Now he is your representative. And you have been made a permanent member of the realm of grace. Do you know if you were reading this as a Jewish person of the day who knew their Bible, this would be very, very hard to digest. Why? Because in the Old Covenant, which we see in the, in the, in the Old Testament, um, it, it just wasn't the, the way. God was taught to be obviously holy and utterly unapproachable and that there was no direct access at all because of our sin. They needed the mediation of a priest and sacrifices and an elaborate system of temple worship. The beauty for believers is in the New Testament because all, uh, all of that changed when Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. And as a result of that, we can have a relationship directly with the high priest who gives us, I would call it, an all-access pass backstage with God. draw near you're being invited to draw near to him i i i just can't not draw uh, from this passage in hebrews chapter 10 verse 19 it says since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of jesus by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body and since we have a great high priest over the house of god Let us draw near with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. Friends, God wants you to draw near. He wants you to have access with Him in your prayers, in your sorrows, in your hearts. What a gracious King He is. He's not hung up on court protocols offering you his hand for a quick handshake only to then move on to the next person and you never hear from him again. God's like, come to me. Let me embrace you in love. You're my child. Because you've honored my son. This has to affect our prayers. Why? Because 
For some of you, you needed to come to church today just to hear this. God wants to hear from you. He wants to hear from you. And you can talk to him. Lean into the access that God uh, has given you. So, peace, access. Now, let's just deal with this third lie. I've heard it said this way. There's really nothing motivating to live for. This is a devastating lie. It usually stems from having our hopes sort of placed in other things other than God, things which ultimately fail me, uh, things that were put in a place that uh, were never supposed to be that important, but they became that important, and it's uh, become kind of undermining. So here's what you need to do with it. You need to expose the false hopes that rob you of sustaining joy. Look at the end of verse 2. Paul says, And we boast in hope of the glory of God. The key word there is hope. Now in English, hope is a very weak word, really. It kind of has the idea of we wish. We wish for it. And in the Greek, uh, the word is elpis. It's a little different. It's a hope-filled confidence. It's a hope-driven certainty. It's an anticipation of something that is to come. So the reason that hope comes third is that the more you embrace peace and access with the Father, the more eager you're going to find yourself hoping to see Him face-to-face with confidence. And that, that hope is something that the Holy Spirit in you is going to be constantly at work, generating, moving in your heart, producing a kind of... People here who have been Christians a long time will know exactly what I'm about to say. It produces an inner restlessness, a kind of groaning to see him face to face. Almost like, uh, can we just get on with this? I can't wait to see him now. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's driven by this hope. Paul talks about that in Romans 8 when he says, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. And listen, the hope in the glory of God is the certain conviction that you will experience the Lord in glory in heaven. And what is waiting for you is indescribable. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.9, Eye has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. All Paul is saying in this passage today is that this hope is something that we can rejoice in, we can boast in, that we can exalt in, some of your translations say. That's awesome. Except some of you listening to this right now are going, but Leo, I am not, I'm not, I'm not experiencing that hope right now. I'm stuck in this ditch of disappointment over so many things 
I, I, I can read Bible verses like that, and it's not motivating to me anymore. I don't know what to do with it. I, what do I do? It's not easy, what I'm about to tell you, because I've lived it firsthand. But this is an important part of maturing as a Christian, and it's this. You have to expose the false hopes that you've been banking on that have got to a place that they never should have that only Jesus is supposed to be in your life. The root cause for so many of our problems is that we have been, built our lives, our identities, our security in things other than Jesus. Those are false hopes. You're like, okay, false hopes. Let me, let me get this. What is a false hope? Let me say it this way. It's anything other than Jesus, and it could be a good thing in and of itself. It's anything where we say, if I can't have it, I don't feel like living. Maybe it's a thing. Maybe it's a person. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's an outcome in your life. Maybe it's something to do with your reputation. I don't know what it is. But I, I, I wonder this morning if deep down your heart is locked onto something like that. It's a false hope. Well, can you, can, can you be more clear for me? Okay. All right. It's things we inwardly long for, rejoice in, find our truest identity in. It could be, here's some examples, financial security. It could be your health or your appearance. It could be your reputation. It could be your career advancement. It could be a certain relationship. It could be about having the perfect family. It could be having a certain lifestyle that you're gunning for. Whatever it is, if it's moved to a place where it's making you feel like if I can't have it, then all is lost. That's a false hope. And false hopes are thieves. They rob you. They rob you of the joy, the ability to rejoice in in the singular hope that is a certain hope for the glory of God. So I I just got to ask you, what has become too important for you? What's moved to a place in your heart that should only be reserved for Jesus. Do you need to make some changes? Changes with your priorities, changes with your resources, changes with your time to loosen your grip on that thing you're holding on to so tightly. That you've set your heart on too much. 
uncomfortable silence. You thinking about it? We all have them. I believe right now that the Lord is pressing in on you something. Today's the day. Listen to him. And ask yourself those questions. Okay, peace, access, hope. Here's the final lie. For people going through tough times. Sounds like this. My trials prove that God doesn't care for me. Now, when life's going easy, everything I've said so far, you can probably track and follow and go, okay, I'll give that some thought. That's, that, that's, that's good teaching, good insight. Uh, those verses make sense. But if your life right now is rough, it's funny how we just tune out. The only way to reject this lie is, is this way. We have to reframe our trials with the knowledge of God's purposes. Now, if you're a believer, I'm going to make an assumption. I'm going to make an assumption that you're going through some kind of trial right now. I don't know what it is. Some size, some shape, it's... Maybe for some of you, the most difficult aspect of your life, is it physical? Is it relational? Is it economic? Is it, is it emotional? Is it persecution? Notice Paul's approach here. Uh, he says in verse 3, Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. Some translations say we rejoice in our sufferings. I'd like to nominate that to be what appears to be one of the most outrageous things in the New Testament. Am I reading this right? Is that in your Bible? Glory in our sufferings? I need to draw a distinction for you between rejoicing in or glorying in and happiness. Paul's not saying, be happy that you're in pain right now. He's not saying that if your life's falling down all around you, you should have a big smile on your face and just be happy all the day. That's that's not the, the verse. We're talking not about happiness, but a type of rejoicing that is supernatural. It's a super, it's not circumstantial. See, happiness is so circumstantial. Happiness is that feeling we get when we're like, hey, we're, we're going to the movies tonight. I'm happy about that. Hey, I just got a promotion. I'm happy about that. Hey, I'm going on a cruise in February to avoid this annoying weather. I'm happy about that. That's, that, that's not what he's getting at. The word here is Supernatural relating to that kind of ability to rejoice in something so rock solid. And I got to tell you, I don't have it in myself to do it. You don't have it in yourself to do it. It's something that's supernatural done by the Holy Spirit. There's something bigger than me going on here. 
That's why he continues to say this, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, verse 4, perseverance character, and character hope. So we're being taught to hang on to God in the mystery of our trial because of something he wants to come out of it. Now, I'm just going to break this down for you quickly as we uh, deal with these last few verses um, into three little takeaways. One, trials produce staying power. Look at verse 3, that word perseverance. Perseverance in the Greek means patient endurance, steadfastness. That's what God is going for in you. God wants to give you the ability to patiently endure difficulties. But we don't want that, do we? What do we want when, when, when a trial comes? We want to impatiently problem solve and get rid of it right away. God's going for perseverance. And I'm telling you, if God grows in you the ability to patiently endure trials, I'm telling you, he can get to you all the other good things he wants to do in your life. So there's a tough choice here when you're in a trial that doesn't seem to be going away at all. I know. The choice is to persevere by faith. When I don't understand it all, but I'm holding on to the truth that he does. Here's the second takeaway. Trials produce life transformation. Look at the word in verse 4, character. The word character means, I like thinking of it this way, tried, tested, and true. The old Chevy moniker. It has the idea of gold being put through the furnace to have the impurities taken out of it to refine gold when you run gold through a hot furnace at a refinery all the impurities it's called dross rise to the surface they get rid of it and what's left is this gold bar that gets stamped as perfectly pure 99.999999% see that's God's chief priority with you as you grow in your walk to have your character be refined it's what Peter talked about in 1 Peter 1 verse 6 where he says, In all of this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Why, Peter? These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So, trials produce life transformation, but you've got to stay with Him, even in the confusion, not rejecting Him. Leo, you make it sound like you think it's so easy standing up there preaching that. It's not. Well, you don't know what I'm going through. You don't know what our family's going through right now. If I were to, I don't know. Correct. 
And I'm not even going to try comparing your trials with other people's or my own. I don't, you know, comparing pain and trials is not usually very fruitful. I can tell you this. Hang on to Christ. In the darkest night, on the coldest day, in the loneliest moment, He will not betray you. He is working something in you. One day He's going to show you the what and the why and the masterpiece that He's working on that you may not see right now. You can't see it right now. Here's the final takeaway. Trials produce increased hope. Look at the end of four, in character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. So do you see that there's a bit of a chain reaction going on here? If you look at the text, there's an initial trial, produces endurance, leads to character, which leads to more hope. But I thought you already talked about hope today, Leo. Yeah, I did. That was point number three. Paul's doing something interesting here. He's showing us that there's a cycle. It's a hope cycle. God wants to grow your hope in him. And he uses all these trials that come your way, which eventually, if you hold on to them and trust them, will lead to more hope. Because he's going to remove false hopes. And he's going to... Uh, get you to a place where you trust in the certain hope, Jesus. And if it, as if to reassure any doubts we have, he says, verse 5, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. I'm not asking you to wish here, Paul says. This hope, I promise you, in Jesus' name, is being supernaturally worked out by the Holy Spirit in you. The Holy Spirit is in you if you have faith in Christ. So rather than buying into the lie that says, this trial is hard, God must not love me, I'm asking you this today. And I'll close with this. Would you be willing by faith to reframe that trial in these verses and trust Jesus Christ to do these supernatural things in your life. We're going to close in worship now. And as the song is sung over you and as you sing along with us, I want you to use this opportunity to express your gratitude to the Lord for what he has given to you today in this passage. Let's pray. Father, you've seen us, Lord, as we've looked at your word and we've seen these truths, Lord, and now we need help. We are weak in ourselves, Lord, to simply read this and and immediately adopt it and have it go deep we need you lord by your holy spirit right now i ask you for uh, on behalf of everyone in this room lord that these truths would go deep you would root out the lies 
And Lord, you would give us the staying power we need. In Jesus' name, amen.